Welcome to Very Honored Frater BT's Esoteric Nerd Podcast, Episode 57. My third interview with Kes Fry. But first, Transformation and Fitness. In which I recite my father's book, Transformations, verse by verse, because he wrote it in chapters and verses. While listening to Jean-Michel Jarre's Oxygen. It changed, I know. We finished Tangerine Dreams Ricochet. This is chapter 1, verse 16. The thing is that sometimes you and I almost forget and act like them. We begin to operate from thinking of being human as an only. Then the lattices of the life wheel become procrustean. That is not amusing after a while, is it? Verse 17. The white light is everywhere. It permeates all doctrine. Even what those in the flesh place call truth and lies. This is what must be so for the game they play in the flesh places to be interesting. The three tie-pins of the flesh place world, then, are what they call irony, confusion, and paradox. They are also known by other names as form, distance, and time. From these three, many things are possible within the completed cycle of the flesh place. And now for the footnotes. I like how he assumes that the reader isn't one of these asleep people that we're talking about. I mean, it's taken me a little while. It worked for me when I was 16 to to be addressed as a fellow awake person. I think that's a good way for a guru to approach a student is as a, an equal, you know? I mean, but to truly be yes. an equal, you know, and to disregard the... Because, I mean... Strictly speaking in Sanskrit, guru is to make clear that which is confused. And we've got a lot of other stuff put on it, like we've got put on other words like in Christianity, like I was pointing out in our previous interview. People hear the word salvation and they go, get away from me with that Christian stuff. People hear guru and they say, get away from me with that icky 1970s Charles Manson-y, you know, reminiscent stuff. Uh, and and uh, ignoring the actual meaning behind the word. And uh, that's, I'm getting sidetracked. This is the whole point of the footnotes is, uh, is that, is that they're missing the point. Like they're circling around the point. The words themselves speak for themselves and it's, it's totally superfluous to do the footnotes, but I'll get to that much later when he starts talking about footnotes in a future chapter. <laughs> so what do you think? Well, I especially like in 17, the beginning, it says the white light is everywhere. Yeah. Because that, I think that really is uh, 
summing, it home. summing up things that this white light, it's yeah. intimacy with everything. Yeah. Nothing is excluded. I think that uh, a lot of people might not know what Procrustean is a reference to. It's, uh, a, a, I believe it's a Greek story. It's a story basically about uh, a man who will, you know, you're, you can stay. He has a, a room for you to stay in. The only problem is the bed is a certain size. And if you don't fit the bed, then either you need to be stretched or something needs to be cut <laughs> off. And then, what, then, then you'll fit the bed. So he's saying the lattices of the life wheel become procrustean. That is not amusing after a while, is it? <laughs> so we start out with making these uh, these these reference points, like a like the tree of life, for instance, like some map, some filing system that works for us for a while. And then, but then after a few hundred years, someone inherits it as a dogma, and someone's beating them over the head with it. And then it's no. And then the lattices of the life wheel become procrustean. And maybe that's not what he's talking about, but that's... But that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It becomes calcified. Yeah. Even if it was a great idea, you know, like the the Eucharist originally, like people hiding out in catacombs going, this bread and wine is the blood and body of the God-man whose name is Jesus. Like, and they're like, yeah, right on, man. Mm-hmm. Like that was right there in Alexandria in the, in, the, in the lower left quarter when that stuff was going on by candlelight, where there were Romans marching around outside was right, right at the heat of, of the transformative nature of that ritual. But I, I guess it's still, it still works for a lot of people. I mean, I, you know, I've been to a few of those, and, and people, they're, not everybody, but some people seem to really be getting something out of it. Well, I suppose some do. Yeah. Uh, it depends on how open they are and how much presence they bring to it and, yeah. and faith in it. Because Cause really it's for us to do. I mean, they're, yeah. they're putting on the play, but we either put ourselves into it or we don't. It's like going to a movie that your wife dragged you to rather than going to a movie you wanted to see. It's the, you know, exactly the difference between, between having a mystical experience at the Eucharist and having a miserable one. Well, like Teresa of Avila reported in her writings that she had profound mystical experiences. Yeah, ec- ecstatic experiences, almost sexual experiences, Re- like realizing the, 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 when the, whole, the Holy Spirit moved through her, she, she had to admit that you know, what she had previously called sexual was kind of part of that experience. It was included. It wasn't excluded from it, which kind of gets back to what we were talking about, about the chakras and how, how sometimes people get, them, get, get, get a block in the middle right where the ego is, and, they, mm, yes. and then they think that, that the, there's lower and higher. I used to think in those terms a lot when, I mean, especially because we would meditate when I was a kid and, and work with those chakras individually and talk about them. And I always felt like from here up was easy, you know, but the problem was down here. That was kind of the way I, I thought of it. So, I mean, when I, when I think that the, the reason why I react so much to when people say higher self is usually people aren't talking about up here, which is what I mean by higher self, as opposed to lower self, you know, down here. Uh, but, but here, I mean, I relate to this, but people, people think up there, you know, they think higher self up there, or at best, they think crown chakra, that, that, you know, but I mean, even if you look at the tree of life, higher self is more like in the throat, or yeah, 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 somewhere between the heart. And in, in, in the Tibetan tradition, you have that red droplet, which is the eternal self that goes from lifetime to lifetime, that goes through the crown, and takes its its place upon the uh the 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 solar plexus 
the uh, right there in the is it in the heart chakra? It's right at the at the top of the liver. It's actually uh, someone in Chinese medicine was telling me that that it's connected to the liver somehow. That, well, I know there's a text that's been very important to me called the Secret of the Golden Flower, mm. which is kind of a combination of Taoist and Tibetan Buddhist influences. Really? Yes. Interesting. Yeah, it. Uh, it's an amazing text. I cool. I actually came in contact with it through some extraordinary events, you know, that happened in my life. Yeah. I was I was doing my senior project paper at uh, UC Irvine under a professor of psychology who was very much into meditation and and mysticism and so forth, and I was writing it. Uh, Using the idea of a mandala as a map of the of the psyche, mm. which I had learned the previous summer from someone that I had met who had traveled around a lot and was very inspiring and inspired. So he told me that there were like these uh, mandalas that I should look at that were, he said, done by some of Carl Jung's patients in the back of this book called The Secret of the Golden Flower. Mm. And he said, uh, you know, you should look at those. And so I went to the local bookstore. It was called Pickwick Bookstore in Costa Mesa to see if I could find the book. And it wasn't there. So I I asked about it. And uh, the clerk said, well, fill out this card and then we'll order it for you. And we'll mail you, you know, the card as soon as the book comes in. And, you know, at that time... I was very skeptical about a belief in like spiritual beings or external things. I just thought it was all within us. Yeah. I was relating to it that way. And I, I was very skeptical about things like astrology and fortune telling and all oh, that. Oh, I'm still very skeptical about all of that stuff. Well, <laughs> external <laughs> beings? I don't know. I mean... <laughs> well, this, well, this woman... The cat, for sure. You, yeah, definitely. But all this other stuff, well, I don't the, know. The, the invisible, you know, <laughs> I know they're external there. beings. I know they're there, but the people who say they see them... Mm. Yeah, I, well, I was, I was kind of agnostic. I mean, I wasn't right, buying right. into it, but I, I couldn't deny it. I, yeah. was just on the I think fence. it's like a radio. Like, some people are really keyed in. Like, when someone's schizophrenic, they're like locked in to 93.1. And, and, and you might be able to see other frequencies. And, and, but they're really insisting on 93.1. That guy is in that corner of the room right now. And it's like, I know, for you. Yeah, I know. And it's true. And I'm not condescending. You really are locked into that frequency where that's happening. Um, but also... You know, there's choirs of angels happening, you know, and, and there's demonic realms. And like, you know, like the, like the text says, the white light is everywhere. The, the, yeah, well, all it's that, all being, being created and destroyed. In all this of moment. that, I just figured it's, that those are projections right. <clears throat> of what is inside of us. Yeah. I definitely uh, believed in the white light because I yeah. had an experience of it. Do you get anything else out of this before we wrap up? Uh, well, yeah. Like I said, the white light is everywhere. Yeah. It's intimacy with everything. It permeates all doctrines. When we think of being human only as an even, only... Even what those in the flesh place call truth and lies. Now, that's a, that's a tremendous yeah. non-dual insight that yeah. everything in creation is within that divine consciousness of that divine light. Yeah. And it's not... 
It's not based on opposites. It has no opposite. It has no equal. Yeah. Nothing can be compared to it. Yeah. So it's it's just a it's all integrating total reality. It's it's but it doesn't it doesn't diminish the differences. Yeah. But it's not limited by them in any way. It's like Feruza Balk said in that movie. It's the stadium in which the the battle between God and the devil goes on. No, the stadium. <laughs> and so the the battle, it's a paradox because it's and on one level it's an illusion. Mm-hmm. Because this is this white light yeah. is the supreme. But that's art. Reality. Maya means illusion, but it also means art. It's the same word, and it's veils. And and it's how else are you going to have art? Yeah, it's an illusion, but it's a factual illusion. Yeah, and it's colorful. It is actually happening. Yeah, but the mistake is thinking that it's absolute reality. It's right. Not. Yeah, music comes and goes. There's harmony and there's disharmony, and disharmony helps us appreciate the harmony. And then it goes away, and then other things come along, and that's the way it is. Contrasts. Yeah. Contrasts. And that's all the opposites. Which is why gripping, like the Buddha says, uh, is, 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 what, is what leads to suffering. If you try to grip the present and keep it the way it is, when it wants to change, you're creating your own suffering. All you, exactly. If you surrender to the changing self-slash-universe, whatever, however... I love that uh, Alan Watts was pointing out that in the, in the early Pali uh, 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 sutras, they would ask him, is it eternal or is it not eternal? And, and he would just remain silent, and, and they'd say, is it neither eternal nor non-eternal? And he'd remain silent, and they'd say, is it completely non-eternal? And then he'd remain silent. Is it completely, like they couldn't pin him down, you know, they, they, it was like, but then what's the conclusion that could be drawn from that sutra? Is it irrelevant? Is it because it's irrelevant? I mean, it's like the reader of the sutra ends up doing the footnotes like we're doing now. Mm. Of, uh, that, that The guy in the sutra is already doing the footnotes, and then the reader ends up doing the footnotes, and everybody's asking the Buddha, like, so does it go on forever, or is, is it just temporary? But he's just silent and remaining in meditation. And, that, I mean, that's... There's a lot in that. You know, I, I feel like I would be doing it a disservice to even go any deeper to it, you know. But anyway, okay, so, yeah, 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 okay, from these many things are possible within the completed cycle of the flesh place, which is sort of like saying, you know, there's many different ways to be miserable. There's 15,000 worlds and 15,000 more worlds of Gehenna. There's a lot of personal hells. There's a lot of different paranoid delusions and a lot of fun stuff, too, but, I mean, it's all temporary. Even right. hanging out at the park with your dog, you know, it, it is temporary and and it can become a fond memory that if you hold on to will become a sad anchor you know and it's just the way life is and it, and there's no reason to beat yourself up for hanging on to sad anchors just because <laughs> you're supposed to be a buddhist and there's no reason to <laughs> you know it's it's it goes on and on and on you get well, to learn these things accepting reality as it is is the foundation of sanity yeah yeah okay. or as hubbard would say when you as is it it disappears <laughs> okay, so that was Transformations and Footnotes. Our guest tonight is Kess Fry. He is a... Here, hey. help me out here. Hey, what label? He is a... Yeah, <laughs> what label? Why would you... You know, okay, okay. okay. <laughs> he, he writes of the actions. A man is known by his actions. This man teaches. He is involved in prison ministry. He uh, writes books. How many books so far? Well, published. I have some manuscripts that are on... 
published. That's true. I have but there's that. there's six published books nice. so nice. far, and the most four recent ones are related to Centering Prayer's conceptual background. Nice. Hello. So, uh, without further ado, let's get to that interview, shall we? Frater, welcome to the Esoteric Nerd Podcast. If that emotional foundation isn't there, the child's operating under a major academic handicap. Yeah. And really needs to be addressed so that um, education needs to have a component that supports the emotional health Psychological and well-being of the children. You know? Yeah. And also the, the social aspect is really important, too, in terms of that. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting the uh, the subtlety of the things that get transmitted on the playground. You know, the, mm. you get the programs of the other kids' parents being passed in. You know, and you, how are you going to deal with it? And then, of course, you have to go home and directly or indirectly bring it up with the parents to find out, test something, say something that some other kid said, and have them look at you and say, "We don't talk like that in this house," you know, or whatever it is, and uh, to learn like. What is with that? What are, where are they coming from? And then, but then I, from experience, and I think I can speak for other people too, um, especially pre-Wikipedia, I think that there's a divide between people who can look up the definition of things. And I, you know, not to say Wikipedia is the ultimate standard of everything, but I mean, just the fact that you can look up other people's research on a subject rather than having to drive to the library to do it <clears throat> like we used to have to. Um, but you'd get an exaggerated version of what the other kids' parents are like, you know? So so you end up with these cartoon caricatures in your mind of what the other kids' parents must be like, and that's the beginning of stereotypes. And it's the beginning yes. of a lot of things, like racism and, and can be, you know, depending on the program you get. And my parents were progressive, and my parents were, you know, not, not uh, the enemy as far as that goes, but they did have some of that stuff that got passed down. And it got passed down to me, and so I'm having to, like, battle with it sometimes in my own mind, you know, and say, hey, come on, man, you know, like, let's, let's reevaluate this and, and look, uh, transcend another level, you know. We need to build some more synaptic patterns on this, you know, and, and do some meditating. I think that's where meditating is really important. People who, people who resort to these stereotype impulses clearly don't meditate. <laughs> I I wish that meditation was taught to children. Yeah, across the board, because uh, through that, a child can learn that they have within themselves an inner source of of peace and strength and wisdom. Yeah, and it frees them from over dependency on externals. Yeah, like they can they learn that they. I'm can so grateful for what needs. my dad taught me. Just yeah. that that twelve minute exercise we would do with the vibrating and, and focusing on the, the, the self we have in common with the whole universe and then the self that we, ha it's just us looking around at the others and then the self that we love each other and sometimes we hate each other but we try not to do that and then, you know, and then other levels where it gets more and more separate until we get to the basest, basest level which we have in common with snakes and stuff like that and, you know, down in the, in the, uh, the, the root chakra and then but then we have these 
more programs that get passed down from people trying to deal with these contradictions because they had a grandpa who was all touchy and inappropriate or whatever it is that divided for them the root chakra from the higher chakras. Christ and love is up here. Evil and the devil is down here. What's in between? Oh, well, there's this ego that's having to struggle and choose light or darkness above or below, higher self or lower self, rather than integrating the selves and admitting that the self that's above the head that we call God and the self that's down in the groin that we call my gross personal dirty underwear is actually the same self. And, 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 you know, we're all dancing in this, in this, like, uh, what's the, uh, Kuan Yin with the thousand arms. Yeah. There's uh, the saying that whenever a hand comes to help, it's her hand. So, you know, it implies that when we do good, that's the benevolent spirit of the universe moving through us, which also implies that when we don't, that's something, that's something else. (laughs) Something else is moving through us, or maybe we're blocking it. It's interesting. Yeah, well, that thousand-armed uh, god or goddess of compassion, you know, Avalokiteshvara, Chandrasekhar, yeah. Kuan Yin, uh, it has an eye in each hand. Oh, yeah. And the eye signifies that it looks at each particular unique situation individually and does what is appropriate to that particular situation. Yeah. So there's no one-size-fits-all. It's adapting to... All the variety. There's this um, of people's situations. There's this thing that gets uh, lumped in with the rest of what's called the flying rolls in the Golden Dawn, called the Cromlech Papers. It was sort of a sister temple that came later on, um, mm. and uh, and they had a document uh, that I'm gonna basically I'm gonna edit later on, and I'm gonna dig it up and I'm gonna read it. Some notes on the church and church teachings. The master left no room for opinion. When he founded his church, he impressed thereon a definite form. His immediate followers from his instructions filled up the details, and the rulers of the church in all ages so far as they have been faithful have been guided by him. And thus, his church hath grown and is alive today. Other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid. Thus, every society which hath rebelled against the church and the rulers thereof is cut off. Even if built on the foundation of the church, it is but wood, hay, stubble that is built thereon, and it is condemned. But observe, if necessary, the society, the men and women, composing the same, oft-times young souls, learning elementary lessons. Thou mayest freely do justice to all noble qualities each individual may have, but no more consort with them in their worship than thou wouldst go into an infant school to learn to read with children of eight years old. The three great branches of the Catholic Church contain among them all the truths taught by the Master. Their errors are in their schisms, in their separation, and their opinion of each other. From any of them thou canst learn much. A Presbyterian, as such, is in great error. Yet in spite thereof, 
He may have much that is pure and holy to teach, yet always with danger, for because he is a Presbyterian, he is below thyself, and the causes that make him or keep him so are points of error, and thou mayest perchance be unable to sift the false from the true. Why read such where lifetime would not suffice read the writings of the saints? The master of masters hath so planned that all that is absolutely needed of his teachings are recorded literally by certain of his followers in what are known as the four Gospels. But, seeing that to human comprehension these can neither be grappled with nor understood, he has further revealed to certain special teachers appointed to guide his flock certain glosses and interpretations of his teachings, whereby they may be brought down to the physical brains and translated into rules of physical conduct for certain sections of mankind. But observe that these of their true nature are limited, only the master's own words being universal. Therefore is closeness of touch with him the solution of all difficulty. Thus, to take one instance, the great initiate whom we term St. Paul was specially inspired and specially trained to speak forth the Master's teachings and expound it to his own time and the countries and races committed to him. To him was given to lay down rules for the newborn and growing church which are still valid, and therefore has that church by divine guidance incorporated the epistles of St. Paul into the infallible and divinely inspired canon of the scripture. Yet they who set the words of St. Paul, which are infallibly true, considered in their connection and circumstances on par with the words of the Master, which are infallible without limitation for all time, for every place, do greatly err. Consider now, the master's own words. Other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring. Feed my sheep. We forbade him, because he followeth not with us. Forbid him not. Feed my sheep. Brother, in these words of his, the master speaks to these. Now look back and see how thou thyself hast drawn nigh unto him. It was by one of the most perfect expressions of his divine spirit, the formularies of the Catholic Church. This was the step that lay before thee, and thou didst mount thereon and find the Lord. Highly privileged wert thou, for there is no other road whereby so rapidly or so nearly approach to him may be one. This step is a white stone. But if thou shouldst make a fetish thereof, as the Muslims do of the Kaaba, and say there is no other way, thou wouldst greatly err. For herein do men often confound what is useful discipline and of immense value to those who are at the stage to profit thereby with the absolute essential of the Master's teaching and the new revelation. These limitations are easy, therefore dear to the human hearts 
of human teachers. Very easy it is to say, my way is the only way. Walk ye in it. Very hard it is to see the path that lies before another, and to aid him to walk in the path that the master has traced before him. Much easier to force him, if it may be, to walk in thy path. Much easier, but not the master's method. Forbid him not, because he walketh not with you. Now what, said the master, is the highest duty? Be not afraid, only believe. Over and over again reiterated, and what is belief or faith? The evidence of things not seen. They then, who put all their trust in what they can see and touch and handle and examine, the agnostics, the rationalists and the like, these are they who offend the master, and any touch of faith that can be given to them is a service to him. But they who strive to believe, who are straining their eyes into the darkness to obtain the evidence of things not seen, all these, though they see falsely and imperfectly, yet they are on the road to the knowledge of the Master. Hence have all the mystic and supernatural religions the germ of truth more or less developed and are energizing upward. All materializing, denying, doubting religions, whereof are most of those which term themselves reformed, tending away from the master. Thou shouldst call nothing common or unclean. That man or woman who seeks a good or fancied good, be it what it may, even if it be merely sensual lust, which to him or her appears the best thing, is, all unknown to him or herself, seeking him, the master. The soul is young, the ideal is low and primitive. Nevertheless, it is an ideal. By degrees will higher ideals be substituted for low ones. Feed my lambs, the master said, not drive them into your own favorite pastures. Nothing is common or unclean. The sacrifice he asks of thee is the sacrifice of thy prejudices, thy limitations, in order that thou mayest feed his sheep, above all, his lambs. Well canst thou guide members of the Catholic Church in Catholic ways. This is easy and demands no sacrifice. Thou art asked to see his hand everywhere, to recognize that faiths thou callest heathen may have a knowledge of him, that there are grains of truth everywhere, that thou art called to be a shepherd. From a being called Shemesh to the beloved companions of the Temple of the Cromlech, April 18th, 1924. Thank you, Jonathan Ryan, for that organ playing. Basically, what it was was their 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 master of their temple was Catholic, and he you know he was trying to get everybody 
to see it from his point of view. You know, he was like, if you'd all just come over into the Catholic Church, we could we could all just be speaking the same language here and, and you'd all like have no problem reconciling all these forces and it'd all make sense. And so, <laughs> so of course some of his parishioners or some of his, the other higher ups in his order, cause it wasn't an order that was affiliated with the Catholic church. And there was no need for it to be so Catholicized because it was off the grid, you know? Um, well, anyway, uh, that they there were these guys that were saying well what ended up happening was they contacted the third order they contacted the angelic being called shemesh and uh and he came through and said um you know yes yes catholicism is the best way yes mm. But <laughs> it's not for everyone. <laughs> it's just the easiest way. It's the most direct way. It's the closest to um, a perfect way. But it's not for everyone. Not, not everyone is going to resonate with it. And so you've got to allow people to have their own path. I mean, this was a specific message for this guy. It was, it was for the leader of the Cromwell oh, Temple. I see. Yeah, yeah. And, and, uh, and so, you know, it was kind of like catering to his ego a little bit, maybe, you yeah. could say. Or it was a false contact, you could say. Or it was a Catholic, I don't know, who, who, whatever. It's, but it's, it's, it's interesting, and I'll find it. I'll dig it up later. It's very interesting. But it, it makes reference to, um, you know, that the way that the Pharisees were treating Mary Magdalene now, this is assuming that the adulteress that was invented in 150 AD had anything to do with Mary Magdalene, which is an assumption made by Pope Gregory VI in the 600s. But anyway, <laughs> if you, barring all of that, that there, there's stuff that has come out in recent decades. Uh, some, like, for example, I read my dad's old writing from the 60s, and these, he's making assumptions about Judas that we don't really make anymore, like because pe people have had new, newer ideas about Judas. But, uh, mm, absolutely. But uh, anyway, what was shoot? I got off. I got off track. Well, anyway, it said um, well, if Shemesh you, was was communicating to the yeah to the, to to him and saying for for someone who's on a basically a pagan path um, as a shepherd for mankind, your job is to help them along their path not force them into your path that some sheep graze over here and you know even though you like the kind of grass on this pasture <laughs> uh, that's the kind of grass that they eat and so as a wise shepherd you help them along the path that they're on and yes. um, yeah so it, it was it was very carefully trying to like find the threads of sure no you're right totally a hundred percent catholic dogma best possible way but <laughs> if you could just allow a little room for everyone else in the world yeah, you know, like, <laughs> a, yeah, there's a big it's a big tent yeah and underneath that tent there's room for all the different right paths all yeah the, different ways the real meaning of the word catholic universal universality yeah, yeah. not universal as in pax romanus we're going to shove it down your throat universal as in what actually is there organically growing on the rock before you look <laughs> before you look and and jam a little crucifix in there and and erase whatever was going on before like some graffiti artist i was yeah. living with this woman uh -huh. who was also you know going to uc irvine and she went and saw an astrologer and I thought well this is really you know weird and this astrologer was an older woman 
who she had heard about from a, a friend of hers in an art class. And the woman was psychic. And so she went to see this astrologer. And while she was seeing the astrologer, she asked about our relationship, you know, about us. And, mm. um, the woman said that she was getting some information about me. And she said that Cass is going to receive unexpected news on two specific dates. And she named those specific dates. There was other stuff she said too, but just to, you know, yeah. keep this with the secret of Golden Flower. Uh, I was going to receive unexpected news on this one particular date. Like, So say she went there in February and the first date was, was March 13th or 14th or something. Right. And then the other date was like June 2nd or 3rd. And so... You know, she told me that, told me the dates, and I said, okay, here's something we can test. I'm going to write down these dates, and then I'm going to see what happens on those days. Whether yeah. or not, I'm, if I receive unexpected news, then I'll think, well, there's something going on, because this person right. was predicting the future, and it was accurate. But if nothing happens... And it has to be uncanny, because if you look, you can find, like, unexpected news, like... Oh, hey, there's a little kid inside the window over there. I have new neighbors. Well, that's unexpected. <laughs> it's sort of like well, unexpected news. Let yeah. me tell you what happened. Okay. So, uh, I was waiting I was waiting to get that card, you know, about the book, The Secret of the Golden Flower. And I hadn't gotten it yet. And I went to that bookstore to get another book on, I think it was called The Three Pillars of Zen or something, on Zen meditation, which my mentor had also said I should read. Mm-hmm. And while I was looking at it, I looked up on the shelf, and there's a copy of The Secret of the Golden Flower. Nice. And so, you know, I grabbed the book, and I looked at it, and I was all excited, and I bought it. And I was wondering, well, why didn't they send me the card? Because here it is, you know. And uh, I took it home, and then paused for a minute. A week later, I got the card, and I went in and said, I bought the book a week ago, and they said, that's impossible. We just got the book in our store two days ago. Huh. But I had the book. Weird. Yeah, that was weird, but something more weird happened. So I got the book, and I took it home, and that evening uh, I was looking at the book and looking at the table of contents, and it was talked about this meditation called the circulation of the light. Mm. And there was there was a memorandum written by Carl Jung to the translator, whose name was Richard Wilhelm, who was real well known for translating the I Ching, mm. which was very popular with people back, you know, in the nineteen sixties. Right. Well it's still and, pretty popular. And in the thing I was reading, Carl Jung said that he believed in this principle of synchronicity, mm. which was connected to the use of the I Ching and also to astrology. Don't sue me the police meaning. Sorry. We're Every, listening to synchronicity too right now. Sorry. Everything in a particular moment of time is characterized by that moment in time. Yeah. And I thought that was interesting. Yeah. And uh, there was a, a Tibetan uh, Vajra mandala on the front that I was looking at. And then I looked at these other mandalas by Carl Jung's, uh, allegedly by his patients. Later I found out he actually did that. <laughs> well, I did. If you get a hold of the red, awesome. if you get a hold of the red book, which just came out in like 2008, it actually has his uh, those mandalas in there, which he did during his confrontation with the unconscious. Hmm. But anyway, 
this was the far out thing that happened. I went to bed that night and I was laying back on my back and I went into this meditation and I was feeling like this circulation of energy in my third eye chakra. Hmm. And suddenly there was like a visual thing of it where I saw these streaks of light that were rotating in a circular pattern, kind of like tick, 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 you know, very rhythmical. And in my mind, I thought, wow, this is the circulation of the light. Because here I am lying there and this light is circulating. And as I focused on the center of this kind of light mandala, it was like I got higher and higher and higher. It was like I was being pulled into yeah. another another dimension. Yeah. I felt my consciousness really expanding. Yeah. It was an incredible experience. And all of a sudden, my lady friend who was lying in the bed asleep next to me, she woke up and she was all panicked saying she was seeing things. And, you know, I just said, well, I'm just meditating. It's okay. You know, go back to sleep. <laughs> so she went back to sleep. And I laid back there and I meditated on this thing. And suddenly it was as though my consciousness took kind of like a subtle shape it felt like there were two wings sticking out of my third eye and they were like flying and I had this incredible sensation of flying through this vast space and I experienced this wonderful feeling of freedom mm. you know in my spirit and in, in myself it was just a, a really blissful feeling of freedom and I fell asleep in that state and then after I fell asleep, I had a very incredible dream. And in the dream, I was sitting down under a tree next to a, a pond, and I was trying to meditate. And across the pond, there were just like these fields of uh, rolling uh, wild grass and stuff, you know. It was kind of a tannish color, like grew around the campus where I was going to school. Yeah, and off in the distance, I see that there's there's a figure walking towards me, you know, and I can't quite make the figure out. But as he gets closer, I start I start to make him out, and it's it's like this this older man who's he's got a white robe on, he's carrying a staff. It kind of reminded me of the hermit card, you know, the number. Uh, nine I think mm -hmm. it is in the, the tarot arcana he's getting close he's got this really dark black beard and and very humble looking face with kind of a long nose and as he gets closer every time he takes a step I feel this intense feeling of love just radiating off of him hmm. and it's it's striking me and I'm just like in tears it's just kind of overwhelming and when I see him, I'm intuiting that I'm seeing an immortal being who has overcome death, who previously had been a human being. And I thought of the philosopher Socrates. He looked very Greek. Hmm. He didn't look Oriental, which was what I would have expected. But he looked very Western. Right. Or maybe even Hebrew. I, I don't know. But he came and he stood at the opposite side of the pond and he locked eyes with me and once he locked eyes with me telepathically he started communicating with me through eye contact giving me instruction in how to meditate hmm. 
And it was almost as if I was a puppet where he was saying, when you feel this, do this. You know, like one of the things he said was, when you feel this real intense energy in your head, close your teeth and just focus, you know, on the center of that to balance right. To balance the energy. Hmm. And other things about, you know, looking at the, the bridge of your nose and then closing your eyes and looking inward and stuff. He gave me all these instructions and... Uh, The dream, the dream faded, and then the next morning when I woke up, I felt really refreshed and energized and dumbfounded because I was trying to figure out, what was this? Mm. This couldn't have been part of me. I mean, this was something way beyond anything I'd ever confronted before. And because of my belief system at the time that everything's within you, I couldn't really... Put it in a box, you know. I right. couldn't make sense out of it. Yeah. So it like, it like stimulated me to think. Well, I guess you better do some rethinking about, you know, the limits of your belief system because right, yeah. this is something beyond anything you ever, you know, yeah. thought of. Well, some of the things that come to mind for me is that it could have been you in a former life, but that I admit must no. be, might, is partially influenced by Avatar: The Last Airbender cartoon, which Whoa. is actually produced by some guys in town. But anyway, this um, being was so far advanced that it couldn't right. have been me. Of course, I mean that's that's what they all what the what the what the living Avatar always says about his former incarnation. <laughs> but uh, but but or it could be a, a like a being coming from the outside. Well, or or a Jungian archetype. Well, like, let example, me the, uh, let me tell you. What happened next? Sure. Okay. So, after, as I woke up and I was reflecting on that, I felt a strong urge to start reading the text of The Secret of the Golden Flower, mm -hmm. which I had just gotten the previous day, unexpectedly. Mm -hmm. And because I hadn't actually read the text of the book. I started reading the text. And the instructions for meditation that were given in the text oh. was the same message that I had received from this being. Oh, wow. It was identical. Huh. So it was like there was like a lineage to this that wasn't just limited, like this book came out of China. It wasn't just limited to the East. Right. But because this being was clearly a Westerner. Huh. And I was just well, so things totally like that, blown it seems away like, by that. It seems like like someone who meditates and gets in touch with the human biorhythm starts to get in touch with certain universals like that and you know i mean i'm on the i'm on the quest i'm on the quest to to find it within myself and to gleam it from other sources you know i uh i i also i, I i'm a sentimental fool i admit um, there's, I have someone who refuses to be interviewed by me because I'm a sentimental fool and, <laughs> and I want to interview them for reasons of nostalgia. Uh, mm. uh, basically, um, uh, the, uh, the, uh, another student of, uh, Andrew DePassano's, uh, mm. and, and she's like, why do you want to know the teachings of Andrew DePassano? I was like, well, cause it was important to my father. And she's like, then I won't teach you. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> bye. That's not good <laughs> you know, like <laughs> that's, that's not a good enough reason yeah. for her. Well, yeah, exactly. So, so, but that said, what am I talking about? Yeah, they. I read. Uh, I read Dogen, the the guy that uh, brought 
brought Zen to Japan. Oh, and Zenji. Yeah, and uh, and 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 I, you know, I read the Shobogenzo, all of his uh, the, the the writings based on his lectures, and uh, became very fond of, of of his point of view. But he he really harped on that Padma. Uh, uh, Padmasana, the lotus pose, full lotus pose, must be full lotus pose. Do half lotus pose until you can do full lotus pose. This is how you do it. You sit on a zafu, which is exactly like this. That's why I have one. Uh, you sit on, you know, on a zabutan and, uh, and you then put you put your legs up on your knees stare at the wall. Thighs. And yeah. it's the reason why I got into yoga. It's the, what motivated oh. me to do all that yoga to begin with was to, because, you know, my dad taught me to meditate, but then... Like, and he told me it was yoga, and then later I grew up and, and, and told a friend of mine that my dad taught me yoga, and he straight up laughed at me because he said his dad taught him yoga, but yoga is what athletic people do, and he's seen my dad. And, uh, and so it really kind of left, left a mark on me. And, but then mm. that, that negative anchor combined with Dogen talking about, <clears throat> this is how to meditate, this is what meditation is, the Padmasana is the Buddha mind seal that was passed down from the seven ancient Buddhas through Siddhartha Gautama down to us. And by sitting in lotus position and looking at the wall, it all happens on its own. You don't have to do anything else. And then, okay, I add on to that. How about a full yoga practice in addition to that, like before and leading up to that? And then I would do my Zazen practice staring at a wall after my Shavasana, after my 10 minutes of laying on my back. And I found that as, okay, this is my what I've got as my formula i could never i could never be i had to train myself i i I had to you know work up to it i did specific Mm. stretches leading up to it i teach them to my students um at crunch fitness on sunset and uh friday at 5 p.m and uh wednesdays at one on that date you know after all those things happened Mm -hmm. i had to admit i got unexpected news Mm. i mean not just the physical book but this inner experience of the circulation of the light the dream where I received teaching from this non-physical being, which at the time I thought, well, that must be some archetype, because I did think of Major Arcana number 9, that maybe that was a manifestation of that. But I was still puzzled. There was a lot of unknownness about it. Then during the next several months, I had a number of extraordinary experiences, Hmm. very extraordinary experiences. And one of them was when some friends of mine from the L.A. area here invited me to go to a seance hmm. where they were, they they had a, a musical group, a kind of a rock band, mm-hmm. and, what, and I thought this was all really weird stuff. <laughs> what they told me was that they were, they were receiving inspiration for writing songs from some spiritual being hmm. and that they could communicate with a spiritual being through this medium, this trance medium, over on Sunset Boulevard here in Los Angeles, who is from Puerto Rico. Interesting. And so I decided, and they invited me to do this, I decided I would accept and just go to one of these seances as a curious observer to watch the show. Because I thought this is really weird, and I wasn't about to to buy into believing in this stuff. Hmm. And so... Uh, I had an interesting conversation with someone who was a teacher at a place called the Church of Light, uh, which was over, over kind of in the Fairfax, Wilshire district, some over there. They they had like their 
their main offices and stuff, and they taught classes using the Egyptian tarot and the, this whole series of books written by somebody named C.C. Zane. Hmm. Have you heard of that? No. Your dad had C.C. Zane's book on the tarot. Okay. And he used that Egyptian deck that they had. Interesting. One of his tarot decks. I had seen that, you know, prior to this with your dad. Yeah. But anyway, um, I went to the seance as an observer. Mm-hmm. And there was like a whole lot of Hispanic people sitting around. And this trance medium was going to go into his trance. And he was half in a trance. And then all of a sudden he lifted his head up. And he's staring right at me. Hmm. And pretty soon, everybody in the room is staring at me because they're just following his gaze to me. Yeah. And he kind of draws out, what, what is your name? Because he's, he's half in a trance, so he can't speak normal. And I said, I'm, my name's Cass Fry. And then he says, well, I have a message for you. And when he said that, I felt these chills on my head and my back. And he said that the the being that was giving the message wouldn't come down into his body to give it. That it was from kind of a higher, you know, yeah. plane. And he said, in order to get the message, I'll have to go deeper into my trance. And when I give you the message, it's going to come in Spanish. Do you understand Spanish? I said, no. But then there was this teacher from the Church of Light it was Mexican who was sitting next to me, and he said, I'll translate for you. And I said, okay. <laughs> and so then he went deeper into the trance, and he was like looking at me, but he was like looking up behind me, and he had this look of awe on his face, like there was some being there that was really putting him in a state of awe. Hmm. I could really, you know, get that. And he started saying the message in Spanish. And the message came translated from the guy next to me from Spanish to English. And basically what he said was that there is an old soul behind you. And he wants you to know that he's there, you know, because you're not believing in this. Hmm. He wants you to know that he's there and he has papers in his hand for you to write. Hmm. And these papers contain a teaching that hasn't been on the earth for 3,000 years. Wow. And I was feeling all this this energy. I mean, it was quite a powerful experience. And he said mainly that this old soul wants you to know that he's there and that he's, he's guiding you and that he exists, you know. Because I was so skeptical, yeah, not wanting to believe in that. Because I just thought this was just like superstition. It's not scientific. You can't, you can't prove it. But yet I could not deny all the different, very unusual experiences that had happened to me since the night I'd had that dream with the secret of the golden flower. Hmm. And uh, then he told me some other things, you know, about future things that were going to happen and so forth. So, you know, that was more unexpected news. Definitely wow. more. Wild. Yeah. <laughs> and, of course, it really got me fired up for wanting to write. Yeah. And so I 
Did you get to read the last chapter in my book? Here, let's go through it. I was thinking because it talks it about the, the old soul that guided me through that experience is, is this same old soul that I'm just telling you about that I had contacted through the the dream, the secret of the golden flower, through this seance, and through several other experiences I have not shared with you. Is it the Will of Divine Love nine? Yes. Here, is it okay if I just read it? Sure, sure. The will of divine love is simple. We are utterly loved by God. God is within all of us and with tender care and longing. God wants us to know God's presence and love deep in our hearts. This simple realization is the most wonderful discovery that holds the potential to free us from fear, sorrow, loneliness, and suffering. If we can integrate its implications and meaning into our consciousness and live true to it in human ground. Divine love calls us to live free in the light of God's presence and love within us. I was briefly shown this sacred truth many years ago in my mid-twenties when something extraordinary happened that greatly enriched my life. It was a spiritual initiation. By initiation, I mean a new experience that inaugurates, but does not complete. A transition from one stage of being and consciousness into another. Spiritual initiations are important steps in our soul's evolutionary journey into God. There are minor and major initiations in a soul's spiritual journey. The experience that follows was, for me, a major spiritual initiation that I've been working to integrate into my personality, soul, and consciousness ever since it happened so many years ago. Through a series of extraordinary experiences I couldn't explain, I'd gradually accepted and become aware that a higher evolved, non-physical spiritual guide and teacher who'd identified himself as an old soul was inspiring at times and communicating with me from within through dreams, intuitive insights, synchronous experiences, and a variety of meditative openings involving energy currents in my body and inner visions. On this particular occasion, I was meditating and focusing on the troubled human condition and the bodhisattva ideal of love and compassion for humanity and all sentient beings. Suddenly, I felt a burst of subtle energy in the third eye center of my forehead, which corresponds to the pituitary gland. My eyes were closed, and I felt this energy center spinning like an expanding wheel that took me beyond the physical realm of the kingdom sphere into more subtle realms or spheres of created reality. I sensed an invisible presence carrying me through a vast expanse of inner space. We were traveling exceedingly fast over great distances. I noticed my eyes were blindfolded, so I could not see what was around me in any direction. Eventually, we landed on what seemed the top of a high mountain. My blindfold was removed. It was quiet and dark. The old soul who'd brought me here stepped aside and prostrated face down before some invisible presence that was there. A current of lightning entered his head from above, and his entire body lit up and glowed with a radiance of power, bliss, and love. I was awed and amazed to witness this. After receiving this incredible anointing, 
from an unseen higher power, the old soul got up and gestured me to do as he had done. I stood where he'd stood and prostrated myself. At the same time, I was aware of my physical body sitting upright in meditation on a chair in a San Francisco apartment far below the place of this inner space mountain top. Something touched the top of my head and an overwhelming current of lightning energy, bliss, and love streamed into me from above, filling my soul with a sacred, holy presence I'd never felt before. As this happened, I felt the holy energy streaming into my physical head and body where I sat in meditation. I was experiencing being in two different spheres or planes of reality simultaneously. The incoming energy felt like it was too pure for me to tolerate as it rushed from my brain down my spine into the suddenly supercharged psycho-spiritual energy centers of my human soul. The unspeakable intensity of this new energy felt as if it may tear me apart, like a well-trained soprano voice shattering an empty crystal wine glass. I felt an awesome third-person presence of God in this holy energy, which was at once humbling, exalting, and permeated with an astonishing sense of sacred eternity, divine immortality, and infinite love. It was too much for me to bear for more than a few timeless seconds. It was instantly obvious that I wasn't pure enough to tolerate this divine energy in my present state of psycho-spiritual development. I'd never imagined anything like this before, and what it suddenly revealed and there was more to come. After the dramatic sacred lightning bolt and overwhelming influx of its holy humbling energy impacting and changing forever the balance of psycho-spiritual energies in my soul, there came a sudden silent immersion of my consciousness into a most profound transcendent state of effortless serenity, peace, and caring preciousness. I was taken out of myself in a cloud of consciousness through the top of my head into an opening of intimate awareness encounter and communion with God in the second person, that is, with the presence of God as the divine beloved and lover of all souls. It seemed I went out from myself into this mysterious great cloud or silent bubble of indescribable peace and love that is somehow present and conscious in the true center of every soul in God's creation. I experienced a co-participation in part of the divine consciousness that abides in all souls and longs to give itself its love to every soul on earth and beyond. Recalling this now, I'm reminded of Tellier Desjardins' idea of the planetary noosphere. See chapter 3. My outer prostration on this spiritual mountaintop was accompanied by an inner prostration of the heart, surrendering my separate self-will to God in a humble spirit of love, devotion, and dedication to the service of God's divine will or plan for creation's perfection. God's incredibly gracious and surpassing response to this surrender was to surrender back to me in loving humility with wordless generosity, kindness, and preciousness. This most intimate communion with God in the second person opens an inner door to spontaneously discovering the presence of God in the first person. That is, our identity or co-participation with God within us in the non-dual, without an opposite, 
oneness of divine love. This beginning movement of human consciousness into God's divine consciousness is simultaneously the individual soul's liberating fulfillment and a fulfillment of the will of divine love. That is, God's fulfillment in the movement of God's creation or work of art, individual soul, toward the completion of God's divine plan in us. In receiving this profound contemplative gift of God's presence and action in the soul, we deeply experience as our own God's ardent longing that all souls may discover and know the goodness and love of the divine indwelling in them. This is the will of divine love, and it becomes our own will and purpose to pursue in union with God the blessed insight of God's self-giving divine gesture and revelation of divine love in the soul as the root of intimacy with everything transcends the relative importance we pay to all lesser dualistic perspectives. This awakening to divine love in the soul initiates a radically new perspective on reality. It reveals the ultimate good news, telling us for certain that everything is always all right and could never be otherwise, regardless of what happens or seems to happen in the drama and game of God's great adventure. This love-enlightened view of what is transcends created reality while including and integrating the dramatic opposites of shifting comedy and tragedy, of good versus evil, into its universal perspective. This divine perspective is grounded in the unassailable serenity, perfection, and will of divine love, the timeless source, immutable essence, and spiritual inheritance of every evolving soul created in God. Should I stop there? If, whichever you'd like to do. There's um, the part where the sudden shock of the the eye, did you go into that part? Or? Yeah, that comes up next in the next... Uh, section yeah when we're on the reach that's pretty wild well let uh, rather than we'll 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 tell people that uh <clears throat> that if they go to amazon and they look up uh kess fry that's k-e-s-s-f-r-e-y the will of divine love you get to find out how that ends and it includes uh hell realms and other aspects of the tree of life on the way down from this from this lofty state back into uh, sitting in that in that apartment was it in yes. San Francisco? Yes, it was. So yeah, very beautiful, beautifully put and very poetic. Um, I mentioned before in a less good mood that it's <clears throat> it's all very Christian terminology. I can see why it's it resonates very well with with um, people from a Christian background because the the particular words chosen are words that simultaneously i i think it will serve three purposes one of which is unfortunate um but the 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 first two are the are the ones we're focusing on which is that people who come from a christian background that maybe didn't get the most enlightened interpretation foisted upon them in that sunday school class you know there was some there was some little bit of edge or some little bit of control because the thing that the thing that a lot of people who have alert allergies to Christianity um, don't like about it, I was thinking about while I was reading that, there's truth in this formula, the formula that's being described more abstractly, the abstraction of the formula of 
first you love God as outside of you. First you come to appreciate God as as this big beautiful universe, for instance. The three parts of speech, the third... Second and first right. person. Right. First, like you and I talking about God as third person. <clears throat> but then when I talk to God, when I pray, that's second person. And then when I say I am God, I'm either being, you know, very narcissistic or solipsistic or, or you know, I mean, in this society it's considered well, you discover not, within you that... But when you actually realize you are, when, when, the, when the I, the true sense of self, overlaps mm. with the true sense of God... Then that that's what they call the gnosis, and when you can't undo it, when when it gets to the point where you're just pretending when you're saying I Edward, when you do it's like you're play acting and going out and playing around, um, and and then wondering how 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 many uh, lifetimes you've doomed yourself to through with, through your bad karma, but knowing ultimately that there's no difference between the great self and the small self, and it's a paradox and kind of taking it for granted. You know, I mean, it's, it's either that, I mean, what's the alternative to that? I mean, I can't even imagine an atheistic uh, perspective of, of, of that somehow dust alone resulted in the, the temporary focusing of energies to the point where my consciousness exists and communicates with you and we'll go back to complete and utter dust. I think maybe that's part of it, though. I think that the confronting of that aspect of reality, that's like the lower selves reality. The, 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 uh, the terror of the root chakra is the knowledge that the life forms all turn back into dust. And the joy of the of the higher chakras is the same thing. <laughs> you know, it's the it's that like that story. Uh, there's this story that sounds kind of rough. That it, it's about I forget the name of the king of the gods in India, in, Indus, Indra, Indra, uh, where he accidentally fell asleep and had a dream that he was a pig and incarnated as a pig, and uh, and all the other gods were lo- left without their king, and they were searching desperately throughout the universe for him, and they finally found him as a pig. And they were like, hey, you need to come back and be the king of the gods. And he was like, hey, I've got a wife. I've got kids. We've got our, our, our mud. You, you better leave me alone, you know. <laughs> and uh, so, so the gods came in and individually started killing his kids one at a time and killing his wife until finally he was all alone and, 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 he, and he begged for it all to be over. And they came in and killed the pig that he was incarnated as. And he was like, oh, thank God. Oh, the, you rescued me. Thank you. He was, now I'm back into my regular... He had become over-identified with the pig with the existence. Pig. Yeah. And that's exactly but what... But somehow we relate with... That's what our we relate with that. Does. We relate with that, yeah. though. We, we feel sorry for the pig that's losing his loved ones and, and ends up killed in the end. But then the end of the story is that, oh, and then King Indra woke up and, and everything was fine. <laughs> you yeah. know, like, what? We can identify with that pig as, yeah. as human beings. And it sounds kind of harsh. It sounds like a harsh with story. with our human ground and not being in touch with our spiritual ground. Yeah, yeah. There's a great story, the last of the nine stories of J.D. Salinger called Teddy, where there's a little boy and it's his last incarnation. And his most recent incarnation, he was a monk in Tibet who was almost about to to achieve enlightenment, but he fell in love with a girl inappropriately right at the end of his life. And so he had to be reborn as this American boy, but he had full memory of all of his previous incarnations and he was only going to have to live for about 10 years. This was J.D. Salinger. Yeah. 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 And so the stories about a guy, a guy who interviews the the kid and, uh, and, uh, and and it was similar stuff. 
to what we were just talking about. I forget. I mean, uh, well, what ends up happening is the kid says, um, you know, that his, his, basically his younger brother, it's his first time as a human that he was a dog in his previous life. And he's going to think that it's really funny to come up behind him and push him into an empty pool. And, uh, that's going to, going to be how he's going to die. And then like it happens at the end of the story and it's kind of like eerie, but like he, Hmm. he basically, but it illustrate, it's illustrating this idea of like, this is his, the, the final step of the soul of the journey of the soul as an incarnate being. And then the first step of, of one who's just become human and uh and is beginning his journey uh, to to the, the same end yeah you were saying that that uh, Janie came out as a magician in her interview huh oh i mean she was never really hiding it i mean she, there were pictures of her dressed as isis for the initiations and there yes. was actually there was there was one where she was dressed up as well, she was one of the priestesses, and uh, and I was dressed up as Hades, and I was sitting on a throne, and she was sitting on my lap, mm. and I was smiling at her. And one of her, like, old, like, sort of, not friends, but, like, someone who knew her years ago, like, posted, no, like, on the page. And I was like, screw you, dude. Had a so problem I, I with deleted it? the deleted it, you know, and, and blocked him. I was like, you know, because it was my picture. I had tagged her in it, you know. Yeah. So, you know. Whatever. I don't know. Hey, I think people, when they, you know, people have their comfort zones and, and normal people have normal comfort zones. And that, you know, that's what my parents taught me when I was young is, oh, well, they're normal. You have to be, you have to talk a certain <laughs> way around normals. <laughs> you can't talk that way around normals. Yeah, you the, know. the culturally acceptable norms. Right. But then, of course, my dad would do the opposite of that, you know, and oh, talk. He was so yeah. And then I, when I was in the order, I, yeah. you know, we'd go to restaurants and we'd talk openly about tarot readings or talk openly about a thought invocation. And there'd be people at the other tables going, what are they talking about? But, we, you know, we'd have kind of strength in numbers. There'd be four or five of us. And I always felt like it was a good thing to, no. to test people's, you know, uh, sense of normality to, to let people know that this stuff goes on. You know, like this, this happens sometimes, you know, I remember one time I got invited to an OTO guy's uh, party. Like he was uh, sort of famous in a circle down there. His name's Brandon down in uh, San Diego. And he was, um, he, he, he would have like a Wednesday book of the law reading and stuff like that. It's just really into Crowley stuff. And I, so I showed up with my, um, with my what would Thoth do shirt on. And I was just like a hit, you know, from the beginning. And they're all like, so, uh, which oasis are you with? I'm like, no, 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 I'm traditional Golden Dawn. And they're like, oh, damn, you're hardcore, you know. Mm-hmm. And and uh, I just suddenly had 30 friends, you know. Like, and, and I didn't realize that was the dynamic because I came from an order where where we were thought, you know, we were taught that there was some kind of hostility well, this was the order that you extricated yourself yeah, from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they, they, these are different times. Like they, in 2006 was when I went to the OTO party and found out that they were friendly, you know, to a Golden Dawn practitioner, and uh, and so. But I was. It was more like 1994, 95, 96 that I was indoctrinated to think that there was a bitter rivalry between oh. between the teachers the people who follow the teachings of Crowley and people who follow the teachings of Mathers it turns out that's totally ridiculous and untrue. Well, I'd heard that I'd heard that same there 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 are Christians who are anti-semitic there are Jewish people who don't like Christians and then there's you know the people who kind of like are a little bit more I don't want to 
you know, condescendingly say more farther along or progressed, but you know, like a little bit more global in their in their perspective, a little bit more accommodating of the other, um, you know, yeah, open-minded, open-minded and tolerant. Yeah, yeah. Recognizing the big tent instead of making it into a little restricted tent. Right. Yeah. And everybody that's not in this restricted tent has got to be wrong because we are. So what about upcoming Absolutely books? Right. Do you have any? Is is the, is the the angel behind you uh, speaking <clears throat> speaking a new a new book through you at the moment? Or? Yes. <laughs> Can you give us any hints? <laughs> well, last time when we were talking, I showed you. That I didn't bring it this time. Oh right. Those criticisms of centering prayer. Oh right, right, right. Oh, so it's addressing that stuff. So what I'm working on, I've written a a response for people that teach and practice it, but. I'm working on a more public, public response, response. Yeah. to try to build a bridge between the oh right and across I, the theological divide. I was I was feeling kind of sick, so I didn't want to jump up and look for the Alan Watts book at the time. But since we're back on that conversation thread, let me see if I can find it because uh, I'll you know give it to you or loan it to you or whatever. Um, it's right on point for what you're doing. This was basically he was trying to do the same thing with the Episcopal community in the 40s or the 50s or something. Oh, yeah, I'm sure he had to deal <clears throat> with that because of his his interest in the Eastern uh, yeah. he eventually philosophy. Gave up. And, you know, he eventually just went totally Eastern. He did. But, well, I told you about my teacher, Lama Govinda, uh -huh. was very good friends with Alan Watts. Alan Watts was the person that welcomed him into the United States and uh, I, I went to a, a seminar, a weekend seminar on Alan Watts' houseboat. Mm -hmm. Alan Watts was present and Mama Govinda was teaching. Uh -huh. In fact, I brought something I want to share with you. I'm not sure how we should do this, but we'll figure out. Uh, one thing we need to do is I'd like to go to a copy store and make you a copy of this document. I have a copy right here. Oh, you do? Yeah. Well... This is a document that was circulated privately among people that were involved with Loma Govinda's Arya Maitreya Mandala. This was written in the early 1970s. Okay. And it's called The Significance of Meditation in Buddhism. Okay. And this paper has some of the most profound insights that had a major beneficial influence on me we'll post a link to this on the uh, description for the site also so I'll, I'll scan it as a pdf document. yeah if you could put it on your site and offer it to people it's it's tremendous i mean so i just if you don't know where i'm talking about just go to edward-reeb.com forward slash vh fred or bt go to episode 57 and you'll find the link on that page well let's see how many pages is it i think it's one, two, three, four, five. It's about six pages. Six or seven pages. Yeah, if you could make like two copies, one for you, and I'd like to, it comes out in black and white better than it is on that yellow. Okay. I'd like to have another copy for myself. Sure. Right now I'm just scanning it. But uh, it is really, really valuable. Cool. Salama Govinda was German, and he understood the Western psyche. Mm -hmm. So he's able to communicate the truths of 
Buddhism, particularly Tibetan Buddhism, but all major schools. Yeah. In language that Westerners can easily understand. Now, Tibetan Buddhism is usually shorthand for Vajrayana Buddhism, which is a type of Buddhism that's not as common in India, um, but is also present in India and yes. also present in China a yes. little bit and also very much present in Japan. Um, now, Vajrayana Buddhism, from what I understand, was a later development. Uh, the, there was the original Buddhism that came from the teachings of Siddhartha Gautama. Yes. And, and then there was, there was the Mahayana Buddhism that kind of came to be an establishment version of that original Buddhism. There was the Hinayana Buddhism, which was the, well, yeah, but if you really want to get serious about it, then you got to, you know, get into one of these weird... Guru. I could say a couple of words about that. Oh, I love that. I studied with Lama Govinda and practiced mm -hmm. for many years. In fact, I well, but, but then much later was Vajrayana. I Buddhism. still do the puja. Well, the, the the way I would put it, mm -hmm. you know, in simple terms, the word yana means vehicle, right? And uh, thunder vehicle, or well, the vajra is the diamond cutter, right? You know, that's the diamond vehicle. But the the first one, which is Taravadan Buddhism. Are to people that are in the Mahayana, they call it uh, Hinayana. Okay. Hinayana means the little vehicle. Right, right. So when the Hinayana, a person is working for their own enlightenment, their own liberation. So it's the individual, the small boat. Yeah. The Mahayana, Maha means great. So that means the great vehicle. And the, the point of that is that the Mahayana has to do with the bodhisattva vow. Mm. The vow not to enter final nirvana until all other sentient beings are liberated. Right. So it, you might say that Jesus Christ is the ultimate bodhisattva in a sense. Right. The Buddha of the West. Right. Who was predicted by Gautama Buddha that there would be a new Buddha born in the West. And by the way, that Buddha is usually pictured not in the full lotus, but in, in a sitting in a chair. Hmm. Well, he was a meditation. carpenter, right? Yes. Yeah. So, the Hinayana, the little vehicle, is for one's individual salvation, but at a certain point in working toward one's individual salvation, one begins to realize that we are all connected. And so then... But the Mahayana Buddhism tends to express itself as a big hall of people with a lot of people mouthing the prayers and waving incense and then one guy sitting up on a throne and supposedly he's a bodhisattva. I mean, that's the, the, same, the same reason, like I mentioned earlier, about people being allergic to Christianity is the actual expression of it. But the teachings, like, the, like what you were talking about in this vision, that when you start out with the appreciation of God as a separate being, you say, I worship you, and then eventually you come to the realization of the divine nature within, Yes, um, that that is a process that one can go through apart from uh, the, 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 the institutions of uh, Christianity or anything else that's based on an elusius kind of model where there's an outer order with a goddess and an inner order with a god and that kind of thing. Yes. Um, but yeah, so the Mahayana, the Mahayana, the Hinayana is for a priest 
who wants to be a priest but not necessarily have a congregation. And then, but then, then someone might start out as a Hinayana Buddhist doing this hardcore practice to become a Buddha himself and then one day realize, oh, what am I doing? I'm being selfish, I should have a flock. And then maybe become a corrupt or not, maybe a really great priest or mm -hmm. really maybe not as much, um, found a new form of Buddhism. Uh, something like that. Maybe in a general sense it could be put that way. Well, the Hinayana, to me, the Hinayana, if I'm a Hinayana Buddhist or Theravada, I'm working for my own liberation, my own salvation. And that's the first step. It's totally necessary before right. you can go into the further yanas. Mm. In the Mahayana, I take the Bodhisattva vow, which is what this initiation was kind of like, though it wasn't under a, quote, Buddhist you know, or any particular religious but framework. In, but then that tends to result in, in, in guys going around thinking they're awake and they're going to wake up everybody else and being obnoxious at Burning Man and stuff. It I could. mean, like, that's like the negative, the, the Asayic aspect, like the, the some, sometimes, maybe, like, like, you know, people identifying, like, a, like I mentioned in an earlier episode on the transformation things, I, identifying myself as not a flesh place fear junkie and uh, identifying others as the flesh place fear junkie so some people will just read the teachings of buddha with a frown and say yeah no i'm just like this guy i get it and then you know like well you ought to wake up like me and the buddha and it's mm. like you know it it's, reminds well, me of the old story there about is the, the person speaking in the name of jesus and the demon yeah. says uh jesus i know and saint peter i know but who are you <laughs> <laughs> well there is such a thing as the delusional false enlightenment yeah which is a big ego trip yeah and it's one of the temptations yeah. that, that the ego may succumb yeah, to. Yeah, the Suryangama Sutra which goes will into those. Yeah. keep a person stuck in self-delusion, thinking they've arrived when right. they haven't even really gotten on the train yet. Yeah. Well, the pure Mahayana is simply a vow to keep incarnating and working for your own liberation, but for the liberation of others, too, Yeah. until everyone's liberated. Right. In other words, everybody has to be liberated before the liberation is complete. <clears throat> For me, that's that's like a, when when I would do the meditation with my dad, we would, uh, you know, um, visualize everyone in that pink light of you know and, and send that that love out and intend for all beings to be at peace and liberated and serene. But the I think what would in my mind that is a key that and the lock is to arrive at a, a a place of serenity in that meditation which results in the buzzing at a particular vibration to accomplish that end to, that, i mean so that so that serenity can vibrate loudly through you such that others can't help but hear it and see it and maybe if they didn't get it anywhere else now they can go oh that's what serenity is and uh, and and so it just happens but but it, but it, it it's only if, if it's arrived at in the right way. Like it, like it, you, you can't start with wanting to shove serenity down the throat of others. You have to start with seeking serenity, you know, and and, mm -hmm. and asking what it is. And and which I mean, and it's sort of it almost seems like there's a little bit of a contradiction between this idea of like all is one and God is within us, yet you have to work for it. 
and 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 you can you you can be a hypocrite, and you might not be as pure as you think you are, or you might mm -hmm. not be worthy to be a teacher. And I think that's that's partly what it is: is it's an individual path. Relating to God as the second person in order to discover God within is something one person does alone. And when they institute some kind of, with all the best intentions or maybe not the best intentions, some kind of institutional religion or, or practice or rite that, uh, it, that enacts that, you're sure to have people that aren't focused on the ceremony and its meaning that are, that are going get, to get catty with each other or whatever it is that happens that spoils the whole experience and makes mm -hmm. it not a divine experience. And then you say, screw the whole thing and go off and find... You know, maybe a, maybe another way of doing the same thing. Maybe that doesn't involve starting with the second person and leading to the first person. Maybe it starts with the first person. You know, like a, like the Atman, the great oh, self yes. of the. You know, someone goes to the east and finds truth there, uh, and then maybe then maybe misses the point and rails against the untruth of starting with it in the second person. But what you're doing is saying, no, there's wisdom in starting with it in the second person. Well, Look at my, the devotional people in India. That, in my personal experience, right now. Yeah, I I relate to the divine in all at different times in all three persons. Sometimes how is it to relate to the, the divine impersonal? As he? The impersonal, the third person uh, is impersonal. It's like, oh, it's what God wanted. Like like why did that animal die? God wanted it to die. There's a there's a. Well, I wouldn't put it that way. <laughs> there's an Arabic expression: God wanted it to die. Yeah, well, inshallah, you know, God's will be done. But right, right. I. Personally, in my own prayer life, at times I relate to God in the third person, impersonal, as totally separate. Yeah. You know, this awesome whatever. Other times I relate more intimately, personally, in the second person. Yeah. And then at other times in the first person. And to have a fully rounded prayer life, I think you need to do all three. Yeah. You can't just compartmentalize yeah. with only one or only two of them, but right. at different times as a human being, it's natural to relate to the ultimate mystery, the ultimate reality in all three of those persons. I, th I think the one thing that might make it less confusing for someone who's like just coming up against these concepts maybe for the first time is that it's wrong, it's definitely, I, I would say, it's definitely wrong and illusion for me to say I am God and you're not. You know, oh. if I say I am the all, the Alpha and the Omega and you're not, I think that's wrong. Oh, I, I also think that when people say Jesus is God and the Alpha and the Omega and you're not, I also think that's wrong. And that's where I run into some conflict with some strictly adhering dogmatic sure. Christians. Um, uh, uh, but, I, but I think that it's absolutely true to say Jesus and I both and you, Kess, are the great all the Alpha and the Omega forever and ever under the ages of ages. To me, that has the ring of truth. Yes. Yet, yet I am open to the possibility that it's all just dust in the wind. You know, I mean, and to a certain degree, I think that that needs to be confronted as, as, as a, an individual ego that, that, that somehow in the human experience is reconciling those two realities. Because we, we do know that we bury people in the ground and they decompose. We do know that the brain stops functioning and that the MRI thing stops lighting up. We know these things. And, and, uh, and we have to deal with it. We have to confront, like, so, some, some aspect of this experience is temporary, for sure. Oh, you know, yes. so maybe 99.99999, maybe, maybe 100, maybe 100 percent. You know, maybe maybe it's just that God is playing this game of 
you know, like when I, when I was a little kid, I used to. I mean, this is kind of gross, but I used to. I used to like to watch the bubbles pop after I'd pee. You know, like they, it'd start out with clean water, and I'd pee into the toilet. Then there'd be a bunch of bubbles, and they'd slowly pop <laughs> until yes. there was none left. And I think that's what God is doing. And 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 uh, not to say we're the bubbles, we're God. You know, <laughs> but we're just playing bubbles. <laughs> yeah, well, and the flesh place. The flesh place is getting too over-identified with, the, with being a yeah, bubble yeah. and losing the perspective. Be an individual. Make sure your mustache is different from the others. You know, I, I don't know. But well, there's something fun about that, too, is, is God trying to be unique you know, through an individual. Like, uh, like I'm going to be completely different from everyone. Well, that's, else, that's part of the beauty of the creation. Is yeah. There's total, infinite variety and uniqueness. But there's a Buddhist hell there, too, if you cling to it the wrong way. Like if if you think that you really really need for your face to be the one that's plastered on all the the posters forever and ever. I mean, there's all kinds of illusion. That, you know, you could call them demons. You could call them neuroses. Well, megalomania. Or, yeah, yeah. Is a good word for it. Well, I think you might say that like the type of Christianity that you disdain, we could call that flesh place. Flesh place fear Christianity. junkie Christianity. Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, that's what that is. Yeah. It's exclusive. It's narrow. And it doesn't get it. Our way or hell. About the universality. Yeah. That the same divine principle is in everybody. Yeah. Whether they have a clue about it or not. It's, we are all that. We are all What's that. What's that? He, the, there's the Hindu expression, that thou art. Yeah. Tat thou art that. Yeah. Excellent. Very good expression. So we're having, um, we're having lunch at two, right? That's what we were yeah, talking about doing. I told Diane that I would call her okay. when we're leaving here, so she will head down. Okay. Uh, when we when I call her. Cool. Cool. So that way we will arrive around the same time. It's around one thirty now. So, uh, is there anything that we should cover that we haven't covered? Uh, well, uh, hmm, I don't know. I I, I reflect ever, often on. What would uh, be of interest to the listeners? Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, uh, you met Thomas Keating, right? Oh, yeah, I know what, him. What was... Oh, he, he's still in present time. He's still alive. You, you guys are buddies. In fact, I had a, an hour-long phone conversation with him shortly before I left on this trip. Oh, nice. Yeah, well, he's, you know, very interested in what I'm writing in response to the criticisms of him and centering. Mm, oh, good. In fact, I found on my trip that there's quite a bit of interest in that. Yeah, among people that are connected to contemplative outreach. Excellent. But like the well, the people down in Texas, for example, they are having to deal with a lot of flesh place fear junkie Christians that are fundamentalists. Right. They're, yeah. They're really opposed to this and paranoid of it too. Yeah. To the idea of and that's the main thing is the paranoia. The, yeah, the xenophobia and the paranoia of it. I mean, yeah, it's it's rough. It's hard to, and it's it's paradoxical even. I mean, in it to honor our ancestors, you know, I think that it's that it's appropriate that we keep certain things and the certain practices. And I think that the Passover Seder is beautiful, but I think that if strictly adhered to, if you take all of those rules, and you, you can observe that, you know, in, in certain. Orthodox Jewish communities, it tends to be kind of um, isolating and sometimes antisocial when you have people tipping over cars who are driving on the Sabbath and stuff like that in certain neighborhoods in Israel. Um, 
you know, so somewhere between that and atheism, you know, maybe is is the, there's a respectful place of balance <laughs> as yeah. far as a personal adherence to or practice to. I think, you know, when, but then that then personal adherence is key. You know, in, insisting that it has to be that way for everyone else is not necessarily the best way to go. But. No, that's that's proven itself to be a failed approach. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Definitely, uh, simply leads to wars. And murder and hatred and division among people, yeah. and lack of uh, connectedness. When we do need connectedness because we are spiritually connected on the deepest level. And the thing that has just by virtue of what it is or time and place, the thing that seems to be doing the most toward connecting all the threads between all these cultures, unfortunately, is advertising and um, mass media, yes. and, uh, and, and especially the popular stuff, unfortunately. I, you know, I wish, because there's a lot of gold. There's gold that's being broadcasted out there on, you know, maybe on certain YouTube channels and certain podcasts and stuff like that, but unfortunately, it's these music videos and things that everybody are just watching over and over and over and over and over, but they're watching them in, in places you wouldn't expect people to be watching them, you know, uh, these days. And, uh, well, in the old days, people used to refer to television as chewing gum for the mind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, unfortunately, that's there's the still thing plenty that's, of that. It's like how English was the main language, the universal language. Unfortunately, there's cultural uh, elements that are that 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 are unpleasant, like Edward Bernays. Are you familiar with him? He was the guy that made bacon for breakfast food, and he made ice, you I've know, in everybody's drinks. I've, I've heard yeah, of yeah, him. he was he was the prop, the propagandist. He kind of began the whole advertising the whole thing. Yeah, thing, yeah, yeah, and it's all based on his, and it's really insidious and kind of overtly evil, and 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 that is the glue that has 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 tied what everybody who's coming along with the West, whether it be South Korea or China, you know, or or especially Japan, and you know, some of the more obvious places. Um, and it's psychological it's, warfare is what it is. It, yeah, yeah. But it's interesting because it 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 creates the need for something like an esoteric nerd podcast, or you know, like um, I, I I used to think that Golden Dawn training was what you know ought to be done for everybody, but now I no longer think that because of how bad that can go and because of what I've witnessed I think that it's much better for people to self-educate but the end result is you can use Dion Fortune's uh, you know psychic self-defense book you know and, and, and the knowledge you glean from that to shoot pentagrams out of your forehead at billboards so that they go away and leave you alone you know because they're magical attacks on us every day every time you see those golden arches somebody's magically attacking your aura you know mm. so it's like good to be aware of those things but i mean you can compulsively be running around swatting flies of course you kind of got to as is things for them to disappear where if you not is them or you resist them then they persist more what was that, that was a Jungism, wasn't it uh, what you that which you persist that which you resist persists you become what you oppose yeah was yeah. what I was put by one of my teachers yeah you become what you hate yeah because hate itself is you know it's like my dad said, love and hate are two sides of the same coin, and that coin is called attachment. So if you, if you love something or you hate something, that's what you're focused on, that's what you become, that's what you create. 
And if you fear something actively, you're visualizing it. It's the same thing as magically manifesting it. If you, if you say, oh, please don't this, please don't that. Try it in a dream. If you're having a lucid dream, oh, uh-oh, please don't be Freddy Krueger around the corner. You know, like, <laughs> see what happens, you know. And it, it's the same thing here. It just is less obvious and, and doesn't happen as quickly. I remember my mom taught me that if you want to be master of, of your life or master of the world or whatever, you know, start with your dreams. Mm. So, but then, you know, there's that whole you got to give people the space to, you know, if you're trying to control others, if you, if you want the world to look like you think it should, to, you know, and then that leads to the conclusion of how do I, how do I manipulate or control others, then it's not, mm. it's not good, you know. I don't know. It's, it's. I almost want to think of it as demonic, you know. But I mean, there's like three reasons why I don't usually go there. It's because that, you know, that'll evoke more, you know, stuff mass that doesn't need to be there on the track. It's like easier to call it a neurosis or or a, or a, a mental disorder or a, a logic error or uh, false false uh, happiness source. What uh, what was that? Um, there's. False self happiness programs that don't work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's, and that's simply what they are. That's yeah. an important part of the conceptual background of the centering prayer. Yeah, that Thomas Keating developed, and I've elaborated in that book, uh, Human Ground, Spiritual Ground. Right. And to me, that information is is information people need to have. Yeah. Because it speaks to the the deeply entrenched unconscious programming that runs people's lives in the wrong direction. Yeah. And they don't realize that this is like dominating them. Romeo and Juliet is a false happiness program that doesn't work. And so like anybody who's seen Romeo and Juliet knows, oh, okay, this is not a good situation. You know? But people romanticize it and then they want to create it and then they want to act it out and then they're like, oh, woe is me. Here I am, you know, living out some some aspect of a tr- story that was a tragedy to begin with that was supposed to be a warning about something to avoid, you know, or, well, maybe not that as much as, as pointing, maybe Shakespeare was pointing something out or, or drawing attention to certain aspects of, of life and youth. Well, he, he did a masterful job of showing all the different types of human weakness and frailty yeah. that there are yeah. in his uh, plays. I would go so far to say is that everyone that succumbs to like a manifesting a counterfeit spirituality is unconsciously controlled by these programs for happiness that are the substance of the false self system in the unconscious. Yeah. They're seeking too much power and control, affection, esteem, approval, security, and survival symbols, sensation and pleasure, being over-identified with their cultural groups and cultural conditioning to the exclusion of others. Yeah, for sure. That's, that's at the root of all the problems that human beings have. Yeah. Individually and collectively. Yeah. It's... It should be part of everyone's education to be aware of that and to be aware of what our true needs are and what we don't really need that we might think we right. need. Yeah, and, and that there's differences and that what oh. what works for me might not work for you and, and uh, you know, you might, might need to look at it. I mean, and that's the point is, you know, don't just accept a script someone handed you. 
I mean, because even if it's a good script, you, you, you still really ought to know what it says and why it says that. And then maybe go through and, and maybe say, actually, this part doesn't work as well anymore. You know, no. maybe I should. Not allowing yourself to succumb to what Bernays created. Yeah. That programming that, that influences people's desire, nature, and their behavior yeah. on an unconscious level. I mean, Pavlov's dog is, I guess, the purest illustration of that, that salivated for meat and then after it heard a bell, and then just when it heard the bell, it salivated. Right. Well, that's, that's the basis of conditioning. Yeah. Conditioning to certain stimuli. There's a, a practice where they, um, they'll put a chain on an elephant, a baby elephant's foot, and then when the elephant grows up, all they just put the chain there and it won't even try to move. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They think the chain's still there even though it's just a rope and if they just pulled a little it'd break. It's ingrained into their their psyche. It's automatic. Yeah. The automatic consciousness that's associated with the sphere of yesed. Interesting, yeah. All the patterns. The memory. The patterns. Subconscious. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, because I was thinking about that on the tree of life. If if it's if the the inspiration is supposed to come from Keter into Tiferet into the center of the heart of the tree of life into the heart of mankind, and then it gets disseminated out appropriately to the different parts of the tree of life, and then that which is meant to go all the way down into manifestation will go down into Yisod into the human consciousness and become a complete and clear thought unless you're drunk or you're on drugs or you know there's some other reason why the inspiration isn't coming through and manifesting clearly but if everything's cool and all the channels are open and you got a healthy mind and a healthy body mm. then then uh, then it comes through as a vision it comes through as a complete inusode and mm-hmm. then you can manifest that vision in in Malkut but yeah. but without the inspiration if you've got a tree of life that looks like the diagram of the garden of eden after the fall where you've got you know the serpent leviathan having taken over all the chakras <laughs> or the the sephirot of the of the ruach and uh having created a divide between the supernals and the ruach and creating that 11th sephirot and hence on the tree of evil there's 11 sephirot barfing out uh you know in the in the form of the serp- the the uh the um that arc demon that's in Da'at that, you know, is like the final bad guy in the video mm. game of the Tree of Life. Um, well, anyway, what, what, what was I talking about? Yeah, you got, you got to get, get, get past all that, you know, because, I mean, that's, and that's kind of, it's interesting because when, when, you, when you go through the whole Golden Dawn formula and you learn the esoteric symbolism or at least what, they, what their best guess was, the people who, who, if you had to ask someone in 1888, Maybe it'd be these guys, you know, like like their interpretation of of, of Genesis. Um, you know, it seems to it seems to it seems to say that like we're naturally born into this state of separation from God, and that's where I kind of go go kind of out of total agreement with them. But unfortunately, the entire all the assumptions upon which the Golden Dawn system is based mm. is based upon that presumption. <laughs> well, so, we come to we come to full self reflective consciousness experiencing as if we're separated from God. Right. And believing that we are. Yeah. And then when we operate, if we make that assumption into an absolute, then we are yeah. totally the prisoners of duality and dualistic thinking. And, and then someone can give you a ladder to get back. Yeah. 
you know. But then if somebody's selling something, they'll keep making the ladder longer and longer and longer. Sure. <laughs> like like a like a handkerchief coming out of a magician's sleeve, you know, like <laughs> Oh, you're on step sixty seven. Well, step sixty eight is where you really, you know, get a little yeah, closer. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Have you have you inhaled water into your buttocks yet? Okay, well you've still got a few weeks uh, before oh enlightenment. God. Yeah, well it's something the something Diane was saying two things. One was that she thinks that your dad never would have put up with the stuff that that order, you know, that you yeah. oh, divorced sure. yourself from. And if he'd heard about that thing that you shared about the semen... Oh, yeah, yeah. Boy, he would have gone through the road. Yeah, yeah. But someone had to go through all that and then blow the whistle on it, you know. I'm certainly glad. I'm glad that that's being exposed. Part, part so of the people, life of a bodhisattva. People won't become <laughs> further victims of that uh, yeah. perverse yeah. teaching or teacher. Well, yeah, because I realized that the podcast was getting people interested in Golden Dawn, and then the word esoteric nerd was, was making them, you know, choose esoteric order rather than hermetic order. I'm like, oh, God, I got to put a stop to this. You know, like, wow. I uh, I can't be the, you know, I, I, I mean, I for a long time I was like, just kind of like, not, okay, okay, I'll just let things be. But then once I realized that I was directly causing people to join his group, that was I had to put a stop to it. Oh, yeah, you have a responsibility yeah. to your listeners. To, yeah, and to my own karma. And to your own karma to steer them in the right path. Yeah. And to warn them about a false situation right. in which they could become victimized. Yeah. And, and to point towards self-initiation, uh, you know, or, or learn self, self-education, or groups that are better, you know, but also are, are willing to admit the faults of groups. One of the teachings from the old soul yeah. that I got early on was, everything you need to know, you can learn from your own mind. Yeah. But that's very fundamental. I like what Alan Watts said, is that fundamentally, every spiritual teacher is running a con, and that con is, I'm going to pick your pocket and sell you your own watch. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, it is a business for many. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. And, you know, and, and with, uh, you know, the economy being what it is, and you got to pay the rent, you know, and they got the, the property taxes, and, oh, what about this? And it's like, oh, uh, well, Jesus says in chapter verse, uh, you know, in the Pistophinities, it says that you got to give over 10%. And, uh, by the way, in the gift shop, if you want uh, these holy things up in, over your mantle that uh, has a great blessing, then then, then uh, help me fucking pay the rent, you know. And, mm. and uh, that's... that's Unfortunately, that's that's the way it is, you know. It's the way the world is. Yes. Yeah. Well, uh, another saying that's really nice that I like is, this is regarding like spiritual teaching, or you could apply it to many things. Is that counterfeit money exists because real money exists, and not the other way around. Mm. And the same thing with like spirituality. Yeah. But that then that brings up the Federal Reserve and you know fiat currency and all that. Like what um, it may. <laughs> what's the difference? <laughs> well, if, there's, if there's, there wasn't something authentic, you yeah, know, yeah. If there wasn't real gold, there wouldn't be fools. Fake gold. gold, yeah, yeah. It's true. Hmm. So people shouldn't just totally write it off because they've run into a few bad apples, yeah, a few con people or whatever. Yeah. 
I think it, it, it it's tough navigating through certain waters, though, because you'll find certain authors that say this is definitely the way it is, and you could cling to that and make it a dogma. But, I mean, anytime you're clinging to something and making it a dogma, I think it's... It, maybe that's a necessary step towards something. Because, like, little kids have to figure, like, oh, what does that word mean? Oh, I guess it means this. And then later you find out that there's a more nuanced meaning, and it only means means that in certain contexts. And and, and uh, that's that's part of learning and growing. And, yeah. But we've got to let go of our pride and go, oh, that means something different than what I thought it meant, you know. Yes. Hey, well, this might be a good time. Yeah, to, yeah. Let's uh, let's to, go ahead and wrap up. To sign Thank off. you very much for being our guest uh, once My again pleasure. on the Esoteric Nerd Podcast. And uh, have a safe trip back up to Alaska. And we look forward to reading the next book. All right. Well, yeah, I'm working at it. And hopefully it's going to turn out well. Sounds good. Yeah. Okay. Good night. Good night. Thank you, Kess, for being our guest on the Esoteric Nerd Podcast tonight. Special thanks to Susumu Ueda and his father, as well as the other monks at Jofuku Wind Temple on Mount Koyasan for the music you're hearing right now. Special thanks to Jean-Michel Jarre, a Jarre, depending on where you're from, I suppose. Thank you to Camille and Kennerly for the harp transitions. Thank you to Janie Mae Presley-Reeb for putting up with my being up here editing all day on a perfectly good Saturday. Feel free to visit edward-reeb.com forward slash vhfratterbt. At the bottom, there is a way you can donate, and you can also click through to the iTunes page. The Esoteric Nerd is officially a five-star podcast under the category of education. The more ratings it gets, the more often it'll show up on people's main menus. So if you think this is material worth getting out there, might take a moment and go ahead and give it a, a review and a rating. As always, thank you for tuning in. And remember, kids, the mediator between the head and the hands must always be the heart. (laughs) 